Scripture reading today comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called into one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. And Father, now as we have heard your word publicly read, and as we prepare for it to be preached, we pray that we would humble ourselves, that we would have teachable hearts, that we would open our minds, and that we would silence the outer man that would seek to discredit our faith, to discredit our very lives, to discredit who we are, so that we would instead remember what the gospel says about us, that we are your beloved children. Father, we come to you in weakness. We come to you tired, tattered, and torn after living in this world these past six days, living in this city amongst the people that are so lost and so broken. We come asking now for you to refresh, to renew, and to empower us through your preaching word, through the preaching of your word. And so, Father, would you teach us once again, and would you enable us by your spirit to respond appropriately Father, please bless this message in spite of the weak vessel who brings it, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So one of my favorite movies of all time is the movie called Shawshank Redemption. Anyone here see the movie Shawshank Redemption? I'm sure it's a very popular movie. For those of you people who've never heard of it, let me give you a quick synopsis of what this movie is about. Set in the 1940s, it's about a man named Andy Dufresne who is set up for a double homicide that he did not commit. And as a result, he's sent to one of the worst, worst possible prisons you could ever go to, which is Shawshank Prison. It's one of the most worst prisons that you could ever have gone to back in that time. It was a place filled with corruption, violence, hypocrisy. And yet, what was so amazing about this man, Dufresne, who was framed for murder, is that he came into a place so dark and so sinister, and he was able to do the unthinkable. He was able to inspire hope to some of the most worst broken, burnt out people who have been so full of despair for many, many years. He was able to come and bring hope. And one of the most powerful scenes in the movie where you see this happening is where he's in the warden's office because he was an accountant, tax accountant, and he was fixing the books for the warden. He was in the warden's office by himself when he encountered a bunch of records, one of which was one of his favorite musicians, Mozart. The Marriage of Figaro, he found it, and he put it right on the spin table. 
And he decided to crank up the PA system so that the entire prison could hear this beautiful orchestrated symphonic masterpiece. And as a result, all the prison echoed that beautiful musical piece known as the Marriage of Figaro. And every prisoner, from the most hardened to the most weakened to the most scared to the most sinister, stopped at their tracks because they were utterly mesmerized by what they were listening to. Morgan Freeman in this movie plays a prisoner. His name was Red, and he narrates what exactly everyone was experiencing as they were hearing this beautiful music. Listen to what he said, quote, I have no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. Truth is, I don't want to know. Some things are best left unsaid. I'd like to think they were singing about something so beautiful that it can't be expressed in words and that it makes your heart ache because of it. I tell you, those voices soared higher and farther than anybody in a great place dares to dream. It was like some beautiful bird flapped into our drab little cage and made those walls dissolve away. And for the briefest of moments, every last man in Shawshank felt free. Now, for many of you, maybe the idea of Mozart and listening to the marriage of Figaro doesn't inspire you the way it inspired these hardcore prisoners. But nevertheless, I think that this scene is a powerful metaphor of what the church is to be in the world. You see, in many ways, this city that we live in is kind of like Shawshank Prison, is it not? I mean, even though there are fun things to do, there are tons of things that you could do 24-7, nevertheless, it doesn't eclipse the fact that in many instances, this city feels like what Red calls a gray place. It's a place filled with violence. It's a place filled with confusion, hypocrisy, and corruption. And the Bible tells us that God has given this city, and in fact, he's given the whole world, a beacon of hope. And that hope is the church, the church. In many ways, the church is like a symphony orchestra made up of individuals from all different walks of life that play various instruments to produce a harmonic beauty that you can never experience in the outside world. And this beautiful performance, like Mozart's music in The Shawshank Redemption, can inspire people who are in despair, who are downcast, who are utterly lost to finally have hope. And in our passage here in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul tells us what this performance of hope is. It's when Christians come together and they serve one another in love, when Christians do their ministry in the church. We're continuing our sermon series entitled METS, which stands for Members Equipped to Serve. And the purpose of this series is to look at the various ministries that God calls every Christian, not just pastors, but every Christian to serve as ministers of God. And today we're going to look at the second ministry that God calls every Christian to serve as a minister of God. And that is our ministry to the church, our ministry to God's family, our ministry towards one another. So with that in mind, three things I want to share with you this morning that we need to understand if we want to be effective ministers for one another. First, we need to understand the unity of the church. Second, we need to talk about the diversity of the church. And finally, we need to talk about the beauty of the church. The unity of the church, the diversity of the church, and finally, the beauty of the church. First, the unity of the church. Now, the first thing that Paul mentions to emphasize how our ministry in the church is so important, he says these words in verse 3. Follow along. He says this, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of Peace, According to Paul, the first thing that we need to recognize, the first thing we need to grasp, if we want to be effective and, and faithful ministers of God as we serve one another in the church, is that we need to understand this idea of unity. 
You and I, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we share a unity with one another. In fact, Paul really wants to drill this idea of the importance of unity by emphasizing about how much we have in common, by emphasizing this idea of oneness in verses 4 to 5. He says, we all have one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one, one, one. You and I are one. Here's the question. What's the big deal of us having such oneness with one another? What's the big deal of us having unity? And why is that so significant when it comes to our ministry to the church? Well, maybe this illustration can help. Imagine for a moment that you come from a pretty big family, like the family that's getting one of their children baptized today. Imagine you come from a family where you have two older brothers or two older siblings and two younger siblings, and you're... Child number three, let's say that you are the smack dab middle child. And let's say in this illustration that your older siblings are more attractive than you, they're more competent than you, they're more accomplished than you, and not only that, that your younger siblings, they're actually smarter than you, they're hitting their milestones faster than you hit your milestones, and that they're basically showing off how better developed they were, they are, than you were when they were your age, when you were their age. How would you feel if you lived in that kind of family where you're surrounded by so much competence, so much beauty, so much success, and you seem to be right in the middle, lost in that mix? How would you feel in that situation? I would venture to guess that you would probably feel so insignificant. You would probably feel like you're unloved. You would probably feel that if you disappeared off the face of the earth that your family wouldn't really care that much, all right? You would probably feel that you make no unique contribution to where you have any value, any significance, any love that would distinguish you in any way in that family. You would feel like you are utterly worthless. Some of you don't come from a family that big, but all of you live in a city where it's surrounded by so much success, so much beauty, so much talent to where any single one of us can be tempted to feel like that metaphorical middle child. Am I right? Isn't it possible that as you're surrounded living in a city filled with people who are smarter than you, more attractive than you, more successful than you, probably more than you could ever be in your life, that you could feel so insignificant, so small, so worthless? Of course it is. That is a temptation that every New Yorker faces because that is the biggest fear that every New Yorker has. But you know what Paul says? Paul says you should never, ever feel that in the church. You may feel that way in the city, but when you come into this church, when you're part of God's family, you should never, ever feel this way. Why? Because Paul tells us God does not play favorites. The fact of the matter is, God knows each and every one of you uniquely, individually. He knows you for who you are, and he does not play favorites. He doesn't have a favorite child. In fact, no child of God would ever be the metaphorical middle child. Listen to what uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 2. Glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. Now, what all this means practically is simply this. When God looks at you, and you compare that to how God looks at for someone like the Apostle Paul, arguably the greatest theologian, the greatest pastor, the greatest missionary that has ever lived and will ever live, God says there is no difference in terms of how I see you to how I see him. Because the way God saved the great Apostle Paul is no different to how God saves any of us. 
He saves all of us through repentance of sin and faith in the gospel. Listen again to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Some of us are Jews. Some of us are Gentiles. Some are slaves and some are free. But we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit. And we all share the same spirit. You are just as loved, just as accepted, just as known as much as Paul is loved and accepted as known by God. That is what Paul is teaching us. There are no favorites as far as God is concerned. There are no middle children in the family of God. And when you let that sink in, when you realize there are no middle children in the family of God, then you're able to serve in the spirit that God wants you to serve. Not in the spirit of fear, not in the spirit of insecurity, not in the spirit of competitiveness, but in the spirit of confidence. In the spirit of confidence. You see, when you are confident that God knows you, not knows of you, but that he knows you, then you will be free from the temptation to think that it's through your acts of service that God notices you. That it's through your acts of ministry in the church that God loves you more or less. That it's through your performance that determines whether or not God will distinguish you from anyone else. No, Scripture tells us that you do not need to perform. You do not need to work to earn the approval of God, to earn the attention of God. You are God's beloved simply because God chose to love you. This is what makes Christianity different from the way of the world. We live in a world that says if you want to be acknowledged, if you want to be approved, then you need to perform, and you need to perform well if you want to get that recognition. But Christianity says it's the total opposite. In the family of God, amongst the people of God, in the city of God, it's very different from the city of man. You do not have to perform before you are loved. No, you are first loved. You are first approved. You are first accepted because by God's grace through his son, Jesus, you have the status of love that is identical to the status of the son. You are co-heirs with Jesus Christ because that is what Jesus purchased for you on the cross as your substitute savior. That is what Paul is teaching us, okay? I'm already loved. I'm already accepted because God is gracious, because God has saved me by his grace. Therefore, I now perform my service with confidence that I matter to God. This is why Paul emphasizes so much the unity of the church. We are one. God looks at you the way he looks at some of the greatest saints that church history has ever produced. God looks at you no differently than the way he looks at some of the great champions of our faith. God looks at you the way he looks at Jesus Christ because we are all one. We're all baptized. We all have the same spirit. Why do you think Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist? Was it because he needed to be cleansed from his sin? No. Because he's trying to show us that the same statement that God made over him when he was baptized, this is my beloved child to whom I am great, very well pleased, is the exact same pronouncement that you receive when you get publicly baptized by the church. The exact same status, the exact same love, the exact volume of affection that was on Jesus when he walked on this earth is now upon you. We are all one. We are united. So that's the first thing we need to understand if we want to be effective ministers. We need to understand our oneness, our unity with one another. But with that said, Paul goes on to tell us that unity is not the only thing that we need. We need something else if we want to be faithful ministers. And this leads me to my next point, the diversity of the church. One of the things you have to recognize is that when Paul talks about the importance of unity, he is not saying uniformity. Okay, When he says that we are to be united, he is not saying that we need to be uniform, that we need to be identical with one another. 
if you join the military, one of the things that they do right away is to make sure that you look and sound like everyone else, right? You go to boot camp, they shave off all your hair so that your unique hairstyle doesn't distinguish you. They take away all your cool, trendy clothes that set you apart from everyone else, and they give you a bland, green uniform to make you look and, and, and dress like everyone else. They make you talk like everyone. They make you walk like everyone, literally. And they really drill it in your head when you're in the military. You are not an individual anymore. There is nothing about you that sets you apart in this group. We all look alike, sound alike, talk alike. We are all the same. Because in the minds of the military, the only way that you can establish unity is if there is uniformity, if there is identity, if which which everyone looks and sounds the same. Because the underlying assumption is if you're distinguished, if you're different, if there is diversity within the group, there can be no unity. That's one of the ways that this world understands unity. But that's not how God understands unity, and that's not the kind of unity that he wants in the church. Look at what God says, or excuse me, look at what Paul says immediately after he talks about our unity, our oneness, starting in verse 7. He says, but to each of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Now that word grace is very important. Paul is not talking about saving grace. He's not talking about the grace that saves us from our sins, which I first mentioned in my previous point. No, the grace that Paul is thinking of here is specifically the grace of gifts. In the Greek, the word grace is charis. If you compare that to the Greek word for spiritual gift, it looks very similar. It's charismata, where we get our word charismatic. And there's a good reason why these two words are very similar because what the Bible teaches us when it comes to spiritual gifts is that you are given the gifts of God by the grace of God. The only way you can have certain gifts in the church is not because you're born with it, it's not because you cultivate it, but because God unilaterally gives it to you by his grace. And what Paul is saying here when you consider all this is pretty astounding because it basically goes like this. Though it is true that God loves all of us equally, it is also true that he loves all of us uniquely. Let me say that again. Though it is true that God loves all of us equally, that we're one, it's also true that God loves all of us uniquely. And the way we see this exhibited the most is by the fact that you and I have different kinds of spiritual gifts that complement one another, that harmonize with one another. Let me explain something to you that you need to grasp. Your unique relationship with God is not supposed to be some private mystical experience that you just have with you and God that you keep all to yourself. No, in the Bible, your unique relationship to God is to further my unique relationship to God. And my unique relationship to God is to further your unique relationship to God. Your unique relationship to God is not to compete with or be compared with or be threatened by my unique relationship with God. Rather, it's to encourage, it's to bless and empower my relationship with God and vice versa, you see. And we experience this blessing the most, most powerfully, when we come together and we serve one another in the church with the diverse gifts that comprise the people of God. Paul lists out some of these gifts here. Apostleship, prophetic gifts, evangelism gifts, preaching, teaching, shepherding, and so on. In fact, there's so many gifts in Scripture that it's hard to really categorize all of them. And Paul goes on to tell us that there are two main reasons why God gave such a wide diversity of gifts. Reason number one, we see it in verse uh, 12, to prepare God's people for works of service. Now, I mentioned this before many times, but I have to say it again. Paul does not say to prepare God's pastors for works of service, but to prepare God's people for works of service. 
You need to understand that if you are a Christian, you are a pastor. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are a minister. I am not the only pastor. He is not the only pastor. We are all pastors. We are all ministers. We are all giving gifts to serve, pastoring one another, serving one another, shepherding one another. You know, one of the sad realities that I see so often in our generation today is that we let the consumerism of the city infect and infiltrate the spirit of the church. I've had people come to me visiting this church and say, you know, Pastor... I'm not sure I like this place yet. I'm church shopping. People literally say, I'm shopping for a church. It's a consumeristic mindset that says, what's in it for me? Do I like the preaching? Is the music good? Are the girls pretty? Are the guys good looking? (laughs) Are the children's ministry good? Now, these aren't necessarily bad things to look for when you're looking for a church. It's not bad to think about your needs that you have as an individual, as a member of the family, in terms about how you can grow. But if that is the main mindset, if that's the only question that you think about, something is seriously off because Paul is telling us in this passage that the first question you should consider when you're considering joining a church is this question. Is there a place where I can serve? Is there a place where I can use these gifts that God has blessed me with by his grace? And if there isn't a place, will the leadership Give me a place. Give me the opportunity to where I can serve. The church is not for you to come and to get your religious services met and felt to where you just sit in an hour and a half service, drop in a couple bucks, and then go on living your life as if nothing is different from the rest of the world. God saved you so that he could save you for a purpose, which is to do good works, to do works of service, to be a minister of his gospel. Now, with all that said, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying because I know we come from a Korean church setting like this and we have seen this mindset, this understanding to be perverted in such a way to where amongst our parents' generation, we conclude that means you spend all your time away from your family. Every, you know, extra free time you have, you don't spend time with the kids, you just spend time at church. Everything is done at church. Every available weekend is done at church, right? You do your work, and then after work, you come to church, and you spend all your time with church people, and you create a Christian subculture, church, church, church. That is not what Paul is saying. And the reason why I know that is because he tells us a second reason why God gave us spiritual gifts, which is what? Verse 12, to build up the body of Christ, The works of service that we do for one another, our ministry towards one another, should have its goal of building up the body of Christ. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He does not say that you are to maintain the body of Christ, but you are to build the body of Christ. Do you guys know the difference between maintaining something versus building something? When you're maintaining something, all you're worried about, all you're obsessed over, all the thing that you care about is making sure things don't change, that things stay the way they are. Right? You don't want any new things. You don't want any new people. All you care about is just keeping the status quo, keeping things from never, ever changing. That's maintaining. That's not what Paul says. Our ministry to the church should result in what? Building up. What does building up assume? It assumes newness. It assumes new things, new ministry, new people that make up this body. One of the things you have to understand, folks, is that your ministry to the church doesn't simply mean that you only do ministry that just ministers to other 
Christians, one of the assumptions behind the idea of building up the body of Christ is that your ministry to the church will also include your ministry to non-Christians outside of the church, whether it be in the form of mercy, social justice, evangelism, whether it means integrating your faith and your work, whether it means raising your family in such a way that non-Christian families can see how you raise your family and be moved by it. Ministry to the church doesn't simply mean that you just obsess with the current members of the church right now, but you also have a heart for the world where you want to bring credibility to faith by how you live out your faith so that eventually you could share your faith so that someone who receives it could embrace that faith and be a part of this body, hence building up this body of Christ. In other words, God gave us spiritual gifts not so that we could be a ghetto, not that we could be insular, but so that we could go out and be a blessing and share this wonderful blessing known as God's family to a world that is broken, tattered, and torn. That is what ministry is all about, and that's why he gives us so many diverse spiritual gifts. Now, some of you are hearing this, and you're thinking to yourself, you know, Pastor, this is easier said than done. I simply don't think I have it in me to think like I'm a pastor. I mean, I don't see myself as a pastor, and I, I look at my life, I look at my lifestyle, I look at my habits. I don't think I would ever be qualified to ever be a pastor, and hence, I don't think I'm capable of serving in the spirit that Paul tells that all of us should serve. What do I do? Great question. Leads me to my final point, the beauty of the church. At the end of our passage, Paul says that we are to build up the church through service, through our ministry towards one another in the church. Why? So that we become mature and attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. What does that mean? To attain to the whole and full measure of Christ? What does that mean? Well, take a look at that phrase, whole measure. That phrase, according to most commentators, simply means completeness. Completeness. Maybe the best way to explain what Paul is getting at is to go back to that illustration of a symphony orchestra. Imagine for a moment you have a violinist playing Mozart beautifully, right? And he or she is just playing it masterfully, and it's just so beautiful. But let's say, um, I'm going to show my ignorance here, another musician, you know, a, a cellist or, or uh, another uh, string instrument player. What, what's another string? Viola? Is that another one? Right, Danny? Okay, good. Right? Or a trombonist or a trumpetist or a saxophonist all come together, all masterfully playing this music. What happens? All of a sudden, this piece of music played that by that one singular violinist gets enhanced, right? It gets harmonized. All of a sudden, more beauty seems to come out of this piece of music that could not have been come out by that one singular violinist, right? And pretty soon, when you add more and more accomplished musicians into the diversity of this mix, all of a sudden, this masterpiece really comes out in fullness, right? Paul is saying that when Christians who are so different from one another and yet equally love come together and they serve one another, we display a beautiful masterpiece because we display a person. When we come together and serve one another in the way that God tells us to do in Scripture, we display a beautiful person that no singular individual could capture simply by walking as an individual Christian in this world. When Christians gather together as a collective like this, as a family, and we serve one another in such a way that shows that we love one another and that we're not threatened by one another, but we are genuine in our service towards one another, 
we display a beautiful master, please. We display a person who serves that will never be found anywhere else. That is how people are able to serve. That is how people who naturally think that they could never be a servant are able to be a servant because they've encountered a beautiful presentation of a person. Who is this person? The world is messed up. The world is broken, kind of like Shawshank Prison. And the reason why the world is as broken as it is is because it's filled with people who don't see themselves as servants who are called to serve. They see themselves as kings who feel entitled to rule. If you think about all the violence, all the corruption, all the hypocrisy that we see in this world that makes this world so disgusting, is because of the underlying assumption that so many individuals have in their hearts. I'm not a minister. I'm not a servant. I am a king. I'm a queen. And I should dominate. I should rule. Right? Of course, this is all figurative, but if you think about it, what is the motive behind why people want to advance in their career? How is that different from a tyrant king trying to expand his kingdom? When you have people in this city who make it their ambition to sleep around with as many beautiful women or as many beautiful men as possible, how is that fundamentally different than the motive of a tyrant king trying to expand his concubine? We live in a city filled with men and women who think that they are cosmic royalty. We are filled with people in a city that feels that they are entitled to be the master of the universe. And the only way that you can persuade such deluded people to where they stop trying to pursue this delusional kingdom that they think is theirs is if they encounter a king who is so beautiful, so glorious, that they recognize that it's better to serve in his kingdom than try to futilely attempt to establish my own. And that is the king, Jesus Christ. Take a look at what Paul says here in verses 8 through 10. Paul says, this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave, gave gifts to men. Why does he ascended mean? What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. When Paul says that Jesus Christ descended to the lower earthly regions... He is describing the kind of king our Jesus is. Instead of demanding a crown of gold encrusted with precious stones, Jesus Christ willingly took on a crown of thorns encrusted with bugs and mud. Instead of demanding a high, heavy scepter of polished gold to be placed in his hands, he willingly received rusted iron nails to be pierced through his hands. Instead of demanding to sit on a throne of sculpted metal, he sat on a splintered wooded peg on the wooden cross. That's the kind of king that our God is. That is the kind of beautiful love that he has for us. That is the love that inspires people like us who think we are something when we're nothing to humble ourselves and to say we are nothing but servants to our great king. That is what inspires us to use these gifts God has given us to serve one another. That is the message that we show the world when we serve each other with faithfulness and love and in humility. Because we are so confident of this beautiful love God has lavished on us. When you see the kind of king our Jesus is, that transforms people to let go of their illegitimate demand to rule. And it enables them to reclaim their joy to serve. 
because they serve a beautiful king who did just that. Brothers and sisters, when you minister to the church with your gifts, you're not just doing it for our benefit. You're doing it for the benefit of the world that needs to see a kind of service that they will never find anywhere else. They need to see the kind of service that imitates the fullness of the one who came and served us. Because it is only him and his beauty that is able to inspire hope in a place as dark and corrupt and broken like our world. That is the masterpiece that we perform as we serve one another. We incarnate in our collective body the body of Christ who hung on the cross for the sins of the world. That is why we serve one another. That is why we're called to minister to one another. That is the ministry that God calls you to serve. Here's my question. Are you serving? Are you ministering? You probably think, oh, I knew a Pastor John's going to round it out by using guilt to get us to serve. No. If you're not serving, my response is, I want you to gaze at your king. I want you to look at his service to you, to us, to the church. Because if you don't start there, your service is going to be no different from the service that you give to the world. It's driven by fear. It's driven by ambition. It's driven by insecurity. We don't need that service. We need the service of Jesus pulsating in this community so that this world will see a different kind of service that is not found in the world. So have you seen him? Have you seen his beauty? Have you seen his service to the church to where it inspires you to serve in your ministry to the church? Let's pray. Father, as we think long and hard about our sense of what drew us to this community, We are confronted with things such as selfish desire, selfish things that that we care more about than about the good of your great name, than for the good of this body. Father, we are confronted with our own consumeristic mindset that we have cultivated in this world and we have brought into the church. Father, would you have mercy on us and forgive us for the ways that we have treated your church like it was nothing more than a marketplace. Father, help us to not fall into that sin ever again. And help us to move forward from this time forward with the spirit of Christ-likeness. That we would have the spirit to serve this body so this body could be built up. So this body can display to the world the one who is the hope of the world. The one who displays the wonderful message of the gospel. The one who is the word. The one who delights over us. God, would you help us to truly be ministers towards one another, not for our own sake only, but for the sake of this world that is in desperate need of hope and inspiration. We ask that we would move forward with a desire to serve in that same spirit so that this body would lift up your great name and that this body, like all bodies of Christ scattered all over the world, will bring blessing to this broken world. Help us to do that now, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're now going to give the Lord his tithes and our offering. If you're visiting us today, we don't expect you to give. But to our members, let's give to God his tithes and our offerings.
Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful Sunday morning where we can gather, praise, and worship you freely as part of your church. You are truly deserving of all our worship. Let us remove ourselves from distracting thoughts, conversations, situations, and really enjoy being in your house. We thank you, Lord, for the leadership of NCF. Bless both Pastor John and Pastor James. Strengthen them and use them mightily for your church. Protect them from sin and temptation, and may you use them to shepherd your church. Watch over their families, protect each and every one, meeting their emotional, spiritual, and physical needs. Bless the members of the D-Board. Give them a heart that desires to honor you as they serve in this position. May their love for NCF be reflected in the way they serve. Give them wisdom in the decisions that they make for our community. Thank you for all the community group leaders. Preserve and watch over them as they lead discussions each week. Thank you for all that serve, especially the ministry team leaders. May they feel encouraged by the members of their team and that more people will volunteer to help with ministry needs. May we be a church that continues to pray and encourage the leadership of NCF. It is a blessing to see so many children at NCF. As they continue to grow, may the Holy Spirit fill them so that they can feel the love of Christ. Use the parents and teachers to manifest Christ's love to the young ones. Watch over your children, and may they feel safe and at peace in your church. Lord, please provide comfort for members who are currently going through hardship. We pray for the students studying and working diligently to obtain their degrees. We pray for members who are seeking a vocation that can honor you while finding satisfaction in that work. We pray for the unemployed members who are between jobs and desire work. We pray for employed members dissatisfied with their career and at risk of burning out. We pray for members who feel lonely or feel like outcasts. We pray for anyone going through physical, emotional ailments. We also pray for grieving members who lost a loved one. Give us strength, wisdom, and place your healing hands on us. May we be a church that can support and ease the burdens of those suffering. God, we give you our tithes, offering, and thanksgiving. Thank you for allowing us to give back to you. Allow us to be good steward of our finances. Bless and use the funds for your church. We thank you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the great joys and privileges that we get to have is to bestow the covenantal sign of God's grace and mercy with every new child that makes his way into this community by the grace of God. And so at this time, we want to give the Lord glory and bless to, blessings to a family by calling up the family of Ezra Kim. So if we could have Ezra's siblings and parents to come forward. Please make your way over here. <laughs> so uh, you guys are no strangers to what's about to happen. <laughs> Because you probably hold the record right now of most baptisms in one family, which is amazing. Um, but really, this is such a joyous occasion, and this is something that we take great delight in. In many ways, Ezra is what we would call a happy accident, right? He was not planned. He was not um, foreknown in any way in your hearts, but he was known in the heart of God. 
and he was planned for as part of God's will for your family. And his name is just so glorious, isn't it? Ezra. For those of you who are familiar with the story of Ezra, Ezra uh, (laughs) was a leader of God's people at a time when God's people have been so unfaithful. And he, along with God's fellow servant Nehemiah, came together and they brought stability and they recaptured God's people's hearts once again to where they would go back to the Lord in repentance and obedience by loving the law of the Lord. And so that is my hope for you, young Ezra, that you would also would be able to carry on the legacy of your uh, namesake, that you would be like God's servant Ezra, and you would capture the heart of your generation to where they would go back to the Lord and always be faithful to him. It is really a wonderful delight to do this. And so at this time, I ask you, Monica and Juno, a series of questions to where you will recommit your vows of raising all of your children in the ways of the Lord. So please respond by saying yes to the following question. Do you acknowledge your child's need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit? Do you claim God's covenant promises in his behalf and do you look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ or his salvation as you do for your own? And do you now unreservedly dedicate your child to God and promise in humble reliance upon divine grace that you will endeavor to set before him a godly example, that you will pray with and for him, that you will teach him the doctrines of our holy religion, and that you will strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. At this time, brothers and sisters, please stand, members of NCF, and also families of the Kim family, to please stand. I will now impose upon you your requirements as fellow members of this body by asking you a series of questions to which you will respond to the portion where it says people. Our God made a covenant with Abraham, the father of all believe, who all, all who believe, saying, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Peter preached the gospel to the church saying, The promise is for you and your children. Do you, the members of this congregation, receive this child into this church as those whom God has called his own according to the covenant? And do you promise to surround him with Christian love, to pray for him, and to set an example of genuine faith and virtue? We do. For whoever welcomes this child in Christ's name welcomes him. And whoever welcomes Christ welcomes the one who sent him. Amen. Please be seated. Ezra, can you come? Hi, buddy. Oh, what a handsome man you are. Ooh, does he like being upright or does upright? Okay, we can do it that way too, buddy. Ezra, Hanin Kim, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And Father, now as this beloved child of yours has received the sign of the covenant as you have ordered, we pray now that he would truly respond in faith all the representation of what this sign and seal represents, that he would walk humbly before you, that he would be faithful all the days of his life, and that he would receive the joy of salvation that he has inherited from his parents. Father, we know that in your kingdom, every child, no matter how many, how numerous, are loved as if they were your only one. And Father, we know that little Ezra would receive much love